Well, thank you, worship team, and welcome everybody this morning. Turn with your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church. Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament, page 884. Well, I guess this is week three into the new fall schedule for us, and I know as a pastor I enjoy kind of the excitement or the buzz of a Sunday morning. There's, you know, more people laughing and visiting and learning and, and worshiping, and it just kind of is invigorating to me. And you might say, well, that's obvious. You're a pastor, and this is what you do, so you, you like to see more people together. I believe Jesus is really happy to see his people gather too. Uh, you know how grandma likes the whole family together at Christmas. I kind of imagining Christ uh, enjoying the Sunday gathering as his people come together to learn, to worship, to visit, to get to know each other. We want to talk about uh, the church and Christ's plan, God's plan for the body of Christ this morning. As you know, we've been going through a series on our core values as a church, so just a little quick review of the first two, and then we're on number three this week. Week one, we talked about our whole basis for authority. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we do anything? It has to have some uh, substantive basis, some authority, and it's that the Bible is God's inerrant word, and we take it as fully authoritative. The Bible is our core value. Last week, we looked at the gospel. The most important truth in terms of our own eternal destiny is the gospel, and so we want to keep the gospel clear and simple, and we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 15, the simple gospel by which we are saved is what? Christ died for our sins and rose again. Period. Don't add anything to it. Christ died for our sins and rose again. Put your faith in Christ alone. Today we look at the value of the church. We place high value on meeting weekly. This thing here, right? We place high value on meeting weekly to worship God, communicate God's word, and build community. The, the phrases are trying to point out that this is both a vertical and horizontal experience that Christ designed for his church. So as we, as we uh, worship, it's us talking to God. As we look at his word, it's him speaking to us, vertical, and then building community or relationships. We place a high value on it because Christ does as well. Surprisingly, Jesus didn't say a lot about the church gathering. It's like he left it for his disciples, became known as apostles, to spell out the importance of the church. But obviously the design of Jesus all along was, and now it's 2,000 years, for us to gather as his church. But here's a couple of key things that Jesus did say. He said that he's going to grow the church as we, the church, invade Satan's domain with the gospel. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That last phrase is translated by some, will not withstand it. They can't stand against it. They can't hold up against what? The gospel, the church. The gospel is unstoppable. We think of the power of Satan sometimes influencing this world, and indeed that's true, but the gospel is unstoppable. 
And so it's through the church that Christ accomplished that. Jesus said he is present when we gather. Matthew 18, 20, where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. Have you taken that seriously? Regardless of the size of any uh, church gathering, size of a church, mega church, small church, do you know Christ is present with us right now because we gathered in his name? And so any excitement, any reverence that we sense is different than every other gathering. This, this, if it's exciting, this isn't like Lambeau Field. If it's, if it's stirring, it's not. It's like Marcus Performing Arts. It's, it's, it's not fish day. <laughs> this, this is the presence of Christ, and we can expect that God would speak to us because of the presence of Christ. And so we value that, and Jesus planned for that. And then, importantly, Jesus said that more would believe in him when we as a church are unified. The night before he was betrayed, arrested, and then went to the cross the next day, uh, Jesus met with the disciples, and after meeting with them and giving them like final important instructions, chapter 17 of John is a prayer, Jesus to the Father. And he said, my prayer is not for them alone, the disciples he just met with, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us here today. He prayed for us that all of them may be one. Some essential unity that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. That's a lot of unity. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity attracts people to the gospel that we want to keep simple and clear, the gospel that brings eternal life. There is conflict everywhere, not just America, cultural, uh, political, ethnic, economic concerns are dividing people and always have and inciting anger, hatred, and violence. That's going to happen all over the world, and Christ intended that we as a church would be distinctly different. And the people would wonder, man, how are they so unified when in fact they are also different on many of these other issues? We are the exception. So please think about that next time you're upset with another Christian over something less than Jesus in the gospel. Well, this morning now we're in Acts 2. Jesus had a great plan for the church, and now it's about to happen. Acts 2 is the birthday of the church, because the birthday of the church is when the Holy Spirit came to indwell and bind together every believer. So let's think about the context of Acts a little bit. Acts chapter 1, if you glance back, Acts chapter 1 verse 15 tells us how many believers in Christ there were after his resurrection and ascension. You see the number there? There were 120 believers. Oh, that's pretty close to what's in the room right now. After all of Jesus' miracles and teaching, his death and resurrection, a whole 120 people gathered in his name. What would change that? Well, look at verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be witnessed in Jerusalem, Judea. It's going to go everywhere fast. Because the Holy Spirit, who is God, is going to indwell my people. So we went from 120 
as a church historically to what? 3,000 people after the, after, the preach, after the coming of the Spirit, Acts 2, and Peter preached the message of the good news of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 41 says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Fast forward in chapter 4, it says there's a, chapter 4, verse 4, there's 5,000, that's just counting the men. And then uh, chapter 6, verse 7, it spread rapidly beyond that. And priests were coming to faith because the Holy Spirit had come and joined the church to one another and this exponential growth. And it's been going on now for 2,000 plus years, and that's why we're sitting here today. And so we are gathered indeed in his name. And so verse 42 is, is now when we see how the church immediately, because suddenly they've got to deal with 3,000 people, and they begin to function the way Christ intended. And we're looking at the honeymoon phase of the church. You can say this is, this is in Jerusalem, and so there can be some things that are distinct about Jerusalem, but it's the basic functions as the church is launched. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. One simple verse with four things, four uh, functions that captured how a church was to relate to one another and to Christ. There's four things we'll talk about and try to understand all four, but it's very possible, in fact, lightly, likely that the first two are the essential two, teaching and fellowship, and then the next two, things like breaking bread and prayer, are the start of a list of what kind of fellowship. So you see, teaching is us hearing from God. Fellowship is that horizontal relationship. And then there's a lot of things, breaking bread, prayer, and if you jump down into verses 45, 44 and 45, sharing financially, verse 46, sharing meals, verse 47, praising God together. There's so many things we share because fellowship, the word literally means sharing, being involved in each other's lives. So there's teaching and there's fellowship. Never forget the second part of that. Sometimes I know we, as a Bible church, can focus on this, the teaching aspect, and we want to hear from God. But uh, the value that we're talking about is, as a church is not that we're simply a spiritual restaurant where we pour in another sermon, and you could go someplace else to another spiritual restaurant and pour in a little different kind of a sermon. It's, it's more than that. But rather we are a family, a sharing of life, a web of relationships that God has planned. So let's start with teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So 3,000 people suddenly. And what are, what are they teaching? What text are they teaching from? We've mentioned before there is no New Testament because it's just happening. So the only texts that they would have, divinely inspired texts, would be the Old Testament. Of course, as, as we come together now, we have the completed revelation, Old and New Testament. So there was a lot more information, much of what's found in our New Testament, that those believers needed to know because they were already part of the church age also. So where are they going to get this information? They're getting it from the apostles who are getting it directly from God. 
They are able to speak with direct revelation, like an Old Testament prophet, thus saith the Lord. And of course, that same uh, gift and inspiration would bring the written form of our word. So how would the people know that the apostles' teaching in verse 42 carried the authority of God? I think verse 43 answers it. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. You see, the apostles could do miracles like Jesus, so the people knew that they spoke with authority like Jesus. In fact, they had become known now, and they're labeled apostles, not disciples. You see, disciples is a word that means learners or followers. And indeed, the disciples followed and learned from Jesus all that time. But now he has commissioned them to launch the church and be the leaders. He's gone. And so now they're called apostles. That word means sent ones, sent out with Christ's authority. And so the apostles have the unique ability to do what Jesus did miraculously so that they would know that what they're saying is true. And this becomes really part of what we see throughout the New Testament then. The apostles' teaching is confirmed by miracles. Mark 16, the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So they didn't have the New Testament texts, but they did miracles, and people said, this must be God speaking. And they believed, and rightly, they had the authority Acts 14.3, I think this was Iconium on one of the missionary journeys. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So Paul and Silas, they walk into this town and say, Jesus who died 10, 20 years ago in Jerusalem and rose again, you believe in him, that's the way you get to heaven. And they say, says who? Well, They didn't say that because they had come and they had done miracles and they realized before they even spoke the message of grace that these guys had the authority of God. It confirmed the message of his grace. It wasn't just miracles for the sake of miracles, but God gave this special gift to the apostles of miracle working. We still believe in miracles today, of course, in answer to prayer, but miracle workers were something for them and then because they had no New Testament scriptures. Hebrews 2 3 to 4. This salvation, the gospel we talked about last week, which was first announced by the Lord, Jesus talked about it, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That's the apostles. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God wanted to make sure that people knew that the people he sent, the apostles, with the message of God's grace, were actually speaking the truth. So it was validated, confirmed, verified. But were the 12 apostles going to be able to do all the teaching that would be needed as the church spread and churches were started in all these different places around the Roman Empire? They couldn't do it all. And so God would give the gift of apostleship and the gift of teaching to others. So there, uniquely, I think, in Jerusalem... During the honeymoon phase of the church, it was the apostles' teaching, the apostles' teaching. But as we fast forward just another uh, couple of decades, and there are churches in places like Rome and Colossae, we find some of the one another's take place. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, we did a series, really it's about the church, but it's about the one another's 
uh, many like 50, 60 statements about love one another, serve one another, pray for one another, those kind of things. We did a series about that. Uh, one of those is teaching. So as a teaching of, of the New Testament age progressed, it wasn't just apostles, but other teachers. So Paul wrote to, to the Roman church, you're competent to instruct one another. You can do this because God is giving you gifted teachers. Colossians 3, teach and admonish one another. And so we see a, the pattern of, of, of teaching in the New Testament as well. In our day, God gives us, gives us teachers. See, it's something we, a couple of key terms that I like to use to help us understand sometimes why we see differences in the early church than today are the terms form and function. The functions of the church are timeless, like what we find in Acts 2.42. The forms that it will take will be different. And so while it was apostles alone, perhaps teaching in Jerusalem, it became apostles and teachers, and then we all become gifted to instruct one another. That's the form it takes today. So, you know, we have quite a number of teachers at Open Door. Of course, I do most of the teaching from up here in this service, but as you know, Pastor Nate and Pastor Seth not only teach here occasionally, but they're teaching on Wednesdays and Sundays, youth and, and, and adults. And, and if you, after this service, if you go to one of the adult Bible fellowships and you see those four doors and the labels on the doors, just simply listing who, who some of the leaders are. There's three names for each. They're all competent to instruct one another. I think this instructing and the value that God has as we gather to understand his word goes even deeper than gifted teachers teaching or leading discussions. Later on in Hebrews, as Pastor Seth was, was reading before, why do we meet? We meet to motivate one another to love and to serve. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. In other words, we are all gathering in order to motivate one another to do what God wants us to do. So we, we are all part of this process. Not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but rather encouraging one another or each other. We are all a part of the process of God teaching us. And as we gather, when it's a small conversation or a Bible study, and we're interacting with each other, we are now actually watching each other apply God's Word and sharing insights with one another that I could never share from here, but because you have something in common, you are able to... Mo have you ever found yourself inspired to serve or help someone because you saw how somebody else was serving or helping someone. Absolutely. We get ideas, and it's like Christ is empowering us through that spur one another. Mine says, you know, get the kind of the horse and cowboy uh, idea. Uh, encourage. One translation says, we should be provoking each other. Like, come on. <laughs> a little bit of a kick. We grow spiritually because of that. So I just... If you consider Open Door to be your church, you have to ask yourself if there's something in the last part of this verse that God is saying to you. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. 
I think we all discovered during COVID when you know, we're all kind of shutting everything down, everything was online, and then gradually trying to get back to meeting together and so forth. I think we all discovered a, a natural human tendency how not meeting is habit-forming. And so we have to overcome bad habits. Maybe it's been kind of a lifelong pattern for you. you kind of come and you kind of don't. Kind of come. If, if you decided to come to church today and you're in the room, I'm really glad you are here. But I hope there'll be a time in your life soon when you no longer decide to come to church because you've already decided. You've already decided to do the things that are essential and you don't even have to decide. You don't decide whether to go to work your next shift. Eh, I don't know. Your kids say, I don't think I want to go to school today. There's no decision, young man. School is what we do. And I think that's kind of what God is saying is, we shouldn't have to decide this. Because it is so essential to the spiritual growth that God has in mind for us individually and then to be part of the body corporately. So a little evaluation. How are you doing with loving a variety of people? That's one of the things that this accomplishes. How you, you, Peter said, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Grow in grace. How do you, we all, I think you're here because you want to be more gracious, like Christ. Okay. How do you grow in grace unless you're around people that need grace? I just don't think it happens. How eager are you to serve others? How, how willing are you at the end of the day? You've already worked hard. The couch looks so good. There's a project you want to do. How willing are you to actually give time? I think we're, we're all so busy that maybe, maybe because of our American affluence or whatever, it's so much easier sometimes to write a check than to get up and go help somebody do something. So how, how is that going? Because the way we're going to fulfill the command of Christ to, to love and good deeds is if we are meeting together. That's what grows and stimulates us to love and serve one another. Let's, let's grow as a church by growing in the teaching aspect. So, so teaching, yes, apostles. Now we have scripture and we have sit on Sundays and the Bible study leader. But we've also got each other. And we teach and admonish one another so that we obey Christ better. So, teaching. God speaking to us. And then this key word, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. The sharing. What kind of sharing? Well, breaking of bread, prayer. Jump down to 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in the homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. People noticed this. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The, the result, the outcome of the church functioning the way it's supposed to in the sharing and the fellowship, people saw that and people said, I want to be a part of that. And they were putting their faith in Christ who died and rose again and the church grew. 
It's amazing how God designed the church to work. But So the first thing we notice there in verses 44 and 45 of the fellowship is the sharing financially with one another. They're all together and had everything in common. So after the service today, no, you don't have to line up and, and lay your wallets on the table or anything like that. Is this communism? I mean, is this, is this socialism? Some people have, have taught that, that, that uh, you look at this verse and we should really kind of, you know, have this communal kind of living. I, anybody who's using this passage to promote socialism isn't paying attention to a couple of obvious issues. First is, this was totally voluntary. This was completely spirit-led generosity. Under socialism, there is some sense of requiring you to part with your money. Taxation just is, is kind of part of that, or more totalitarian regimes, some kind of could be seizure and extortion in, 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 those, in those extreme situations. But this was voluntary. This is a God thing. People just gave. It's a work of God. If you were part of the church uh, during the fundraising and building of the discipleship center recently, uh, there was an unusual outpouring of spirit-led generosity, let's put it that way. That's, that's, that's how, that's how uh, God paid for that nice building. It was voluntary, it was generous, it was kind of unique. And, and this actually is a unique moment in, in church history at the beginning, too. Uh, if you notice the context, if, back in chapter 2, when the Spirit came, there's a list of how uh, the, the apostles were enabled to speak in tongues, these languages of these different uh, nations. Chapter 2, verse 9, 10, 11, there's a whole list of 12, 13 uh, regions where there would be different languages spoken. And uh, that tells us how that there were Jewish people, maybe the men in some cases, or whole families, who came together at the three major feast times of Israel. And uh, this was the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after the Feast of First fruits. First fruits is when Jesus rose from the dead. Fifty days later was the Jewish feast of Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit came in fulfillment of that feast. So at Pentecost, there were probably, definitely thousands, perhaps several hundred thousand guests in Jerusalem. Some historians guesstimate that the population of Jerusalem at feast time could grow two to three times the normal population. Where did they all stay? There is no room in the inn for all that. So people stayed with people, hospitality. And so it was just kind of a thing that you'd come for that, that week-long feast and you would have guests and they'd stay with friends and family. But this feast was different because at this feast, the Holy Spirit came and the church was launched. And now suddenly there are 3,000, then soon 5,000, and how many thousand in these opening weeks who had put their faith in Christ, and they're absorbing, they're just drinking in all the information from the apostles. What's the church? What's the church supposed to do? What's different now? We live after the cross. So there's the teaching, and then the... Where are they staying? In those homes. For how long? Who knows how long? I'm kind of imagining some conversations late at night where the wife says to the husband, when are they leaving? <laughs> right? I mean, this is an exciting, great time for the spiritual launch of the church, but there is a, there's a logistical nightmare, overwhelming. Because he's wondering, 
how are we going to pay for food for all these people? Well, the Holy Spirit did something real special. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling possessions and good they gave to everyone who had need. So um, people would start selling stuff. Biblical basis of rummage sales right there. Some, we find in chapter 4, sold land. Barnabas sold a piece of field. We need, we need more cash. He sold, he sold a piece of real estate and gave it. And, and, and these unusual things happened throughout, throughout the centuries as well. But there's, there was a particular need there, it seems to me. And, and so they, they did this kind of giving in this special honeymoon stage of the, of the church. You know, kind of whatever it takes. Form and function. So the form of giving was unique probably at Jerusalem, but the function has continued. So we find out, find throughout the, the New Testament there is, there is giving that is part of God's plan for our worship and for our connection, really, to each other. It, it's, a, it's a normal function that takes different forms. But there's some basic principles. If I can advance this slide, just one more here. In... Um, there we go. Whoops. First uh, Corinthians sixteen two. On the first day of every week, that's when people gathered to celebrate what the resurrection. That's when the church gathered. First day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. The issue was famine uh, relief. Uh, five or six years after the church had launched. Uh, the church is scattered by persecution, and in Antioch, it turns out, they find out that there's a famine going to happen in Jerusalem, and Paul, as he's traveling around the next decade or two, is, is actually raising funds to help the church in Jerusalem. But the giving thing is different. They're not all selling uh, their land and that kind of thing, but now they're what? They're, they're setting aside a sum of money in keeping with their income. It's regular. And it's proportionate. Many of you have found the, the joy of, of giving with this principle, regular proportionate giving. That's, that's kind of was the ongoing form of, of giving. Galatians 6, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The issue of supporting full-time teachers, First Timothy uh, also. Uh, it's a good time to say thank you to you as a church family. You've supported our family through the years and the other pastors uh, of the church as well, as well as our missionaries. Uh, you, you supply us with uh, salary and, and benefits so that we don't have to be getting other jobs, but we're able to, to focus on, on this ministry. Also in Galatians 6, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, uh, Anyone. I mean, there's all kinds of needs in the community, and you might be involved in some of those things that are just helping, whether it's a blood drive or whether it's a financial uh, good opportunity in the community, but also have a special focus on the household of faith. You know somebody in the body that's in need, and, and, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll actually see some of that next week in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, how God has designed for us to, to share with one another. So, Financial generosity is a continual function. It was, of course, unique here. That's one kind of fellowship, though, is the sharing that is necessary financially. What else? Verse 42, breaking of bread as one form of sharing. Breaking of bread. Uh, That's a little phrase that was kind of loaded with a meaning. It, It wasn't just about 
breaking bread because the bread got hard, but it was about relating to another, one another, sharing food to build relationships as well as to honor Christ. Now, if you take a look down at verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So kind of two levels of meeting they had already in Jerusalem. So the, the temple was always open. The temple was always functional for people to come and bring sacrifices and everything that was typical of the Jewish background. And so the Christians, it seems, has carved out a certain area in the temple courts. It's kind of a big public gathering, village square almost kind of feeling. And this was where they began to meet daily for the apostles' teaching, because this is all new. Where do we meet? It wasn't even the issue. Well, that's an obvious place. Anybody can go there. But then they saw that they really needed to get to know each other better personally, so they began to meet in each other's homes. And you can almost get the the sense, kind of like, this is a big... Everybody can, can come in here, and, and, and yeah, we try to get people to a smaller level, adult Bible fellowships, ladies' fellowship, different Bible studies through the Bible, or whatever it might be, because we need this other relationship. And, and when you get together, then you begin to eat together. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. Um, is breaking of bread here referring to communion, remembering Christ that he died for our sins and rose again with the bread and the cup? Or is it hospitality where you invite another family over for dinner? I have a feeling the answer is yes. I think it probably included both. 1 Corinthians 11 is an example where actually Paul's rebuking the Corinthian church for how, they were, how things were going at their, at their meals. But uh, it seems that on the first day of the week, it said, when they gather for, for fellowship, that's also when they would have the bread and the cup. But it seemed to involve a full meal. But they would share a meal together, and then they would take kind of like Jesus and, and remember the, the bread, represent the body of Christ, and the, and the, and the, and the cup would be the death of Christ in his blood, and, and it became a spiritual fellowship. Uh, one of my uh, close friends in seminary uh, pastored a uh, church in Illinois for many years that had the habit or the, the tradition that after every Sunday service, there was a simple meal available. And anybody that had, was able to stay could stay for that meal, and then they'd actually have communion with that meal. Perfectly acceptable and similar probably more to the New Testament form. Uh, but, other, but that's the function, and, and it takes different forms. We, we uh, celebrate communion on the first weekend of the month uh, here, and we use more the token of the, the bread and the cup. But when do we eat together? One time we eat together is after this service and before Adult Bible Fellowships. Likewise, after the other break as well. Why do we do that? Why, why are we bringing uh, donuts and pastry and coffee. Is it because you guys can't afford to eat at home? No. It's not just to fill your tummies or your kids' tummies. It's to be a launching point for filling your soul with relationships, the fellowship. There's something kind of disarming about eating together. There's a reason, you know, that salespeople take potential customers to dinner. 
It's to develop a relationship that hopefully, in that case, would become a, a uh, commercial relationship. There's a reason why the boss sometimes takes employees to eat, because he wants to have a relationship, not just maybe the, the top-down. And there's a reason why we, we even have snacks, to get us talking. It kind of gives you something to do, right? Instead of just standing there like, you know, what do we talk about? You talk about the sprinkles on your donut or, or whatever to, to, get, to get you going. Uh, something beyond small talk, eventually, that's a great place to start, can become something that's eternal. You develop a relationship. Jesus, uh, again, that night before he went to the cross, what did he do? He shared a meal. We call it the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. And then the Last Supper became the Lord's Supper, because of the additional elements that were added to it. and then, But Jesus talked with the disciples about the most important things, what they were going to be doing the next 2,000 years, what the church was going to be doing, and they were supposed to launch. And so he had some food. They did it along with the, with the Passover meal. Let's, let's, now let's put a new significance. In. Let's make sure that we put a new significance into eating together as well. We don't go to homes every day to eat. This, this was a, you know, like I said, this was the beginning days, but when was the last time you had someone over? Ice cream or a meal? Just because you wanted to get to know them a little better in the body of Christ. When's the last time? Would you dare to have a whole family over for a meal? even if your rug is worn and their house is nicer than yours. If you do, you'll grow closer. It'll stimulate you to care, love, and serve. It's how we get to know each other as many times by sharing food. First Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Good reason why a husband and wife would kind of be together on how much you do it, too. So it can be done with a, a willing, free heart. 1 Peter 5, 14, another way to get to know each other is to greet another with a kiss of love, or holy kiss. It's a phrase found four times in the New Testament. It's telling him to be physically affectionate. Now, just before you get all, get all weirded out, Laura, <laughs> stop naming names. I think that was a traditional Eastern kiss. It was kind of the each cheek kind of a thing and, and, and so they continue it's, it's a handshake it's a hug for many sometimes it's just being bold enough to say hi to someone you don't know greet one another you got to break the ice you got to get to know each other if we're going to really share life and stimulate one another to do what God has asked us to do and have the effect that daily those were being saved that we, we are an attraction to the world by our love Jesus said and the result becomes that we are people who, through love, serve one another. Why do we gather? We gather to hear God's word, but then to also honor Christ by sharing life together. You know, I know as I talk about the whole gathering things, and then I love to hear the, the buzz of everybody together, um, some of us relish coming into a large gathering. It's exciting. Those of us who love it are kind of obvious. There are some, maybe most 
of the people in the room who don't necessarily relish walking into a large group. I get it. I'm married to someone like that. You're more comfortable with one, three good friends. Maybe five, maybe it's okay if, if you just know ten people in the body of Christ. It's okay with you. They're your comfort zone. And if that's you and you're in the room right now, I want to celebrate the fact that you did something bold and brave. Just coming here. It was an act, it's an act of faith for you to come to a, a bigger group. It's not your natural bent. And, and it may be that your whole life, maybe you're doing this regularly, and you know it's going to exhaust you, but it's going to spiritually stimulate you. So you keep doing that. You, you, you drove, you, you parked the car, you walked up to a door and your heart started beating just a little bit faster because you don't know for sure who you're going to see, who you're going to have to greet, where are you going to sit, who are you going to sit with? And it's, it's a little bit of anxiety for you, but congratulations. It's okay if it's a big deal for you. And I just, I urge you as well as those on the other end of the, that spectrum to, to go all in. Say hi to someone you don't know after services. Just a crazy act of faith. Just crazy. Sit by someone. If you go to one of the adult Bible fellowships today, and I hope you do, sit by someone you don't normally sit by. And the anxiety is just going to rise, isn't it? Because you don't know them. Exactly. They're not in your fab five. Crazy act of faith. And when you're in that group, dare to say something out loud during the discussion time, even if you think it sounds silly, because it probably won't. Because what sounds silly often are some of us who try to be witty and should probably not talk so much, okay? So we need to hear from, from you, because relationships in the body are so important, and it just takes a little more faith and courage for some. One final phrase in verse 42. Another thing we share is prayer. Prayer. We pray for one another. Or jump down to verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. So prayer and praise. So teaching of the apostles, that's us hearing from God. Prayer and praise is God hearing from us. That's crucial, that we do it together. Obviously, prayer is an individual thing on the first foundational constant level daily, but prayer becomes a corporate thing where we can enter into appealing to God for what's on our hearts. That's why we have prayer requests in, in our adult Bible fellowships. That's why we, even, we, we, we pray to begin and end here, basically. But, and I know that that's a challenge it's a challenge to lead corporate prayer, to speak out loud, because in fact you are seeking somehow to draw others into joining you for that. And it's a challenge if you're the one listening to someone leading a corporate prayer, because somehow your mind is supposed to get off of you know, the game this afternoon or whatever else to, to capture and join the person who's leading it. It's a, it's a big challenge to do that, but 
God hears us as we join our prayers together. Example in uh, John, uh, Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they were proclaiming Christ publicly there in Jerusalem and doing miracles, and they were thrown in jail for it, and then they were released the next day, and they would go back to the church, and the church gathered to do what? They praised God together, and they prayed that they'd be able to keep sharing the gospel boldly. That's what we do. We pray for the impact of the gospel. Let's, let's be, make sure that we remember to pray for the impact of the gospel. That's what we're here for. And then we praise God together for all he's done. So the form took different, was, was maybe different there, but the, the purposes are the same. Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer. Paul said, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. Paul's writing this from prison in Rome. He's writing to the church of Colossae, a place he'd never even been. But he knew some, a couple people there. One he knew was Onesimus, who hosted the church. And I imagine that as Paul sent this letter about asking for prayer, he'd imagine Onesimus in his home, you know, unrolling the letter and reading it to people, and they would take time and they would pray, hey, Lord, just please help Paul as he's sharing the gospel there in prison. And, and in Philippians, Paul is reporting that, hey, in fact, you know, I, the gospel is spreading because i got these guards that have to watch me, and I tell them the gospel all the time. And so he envisioned this actual living, breathing relationship with God that the church would have through prayer. James 5, 16, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So it's good to pray for healing. We have many things that are, we're struggling with in these earthly bodies, and we should pray about them. And, and God heals and answers to prayer uh, many times. But what about this confessing sins to each other? This isn't some kind of official uh, priestly types of things. I think this is talking about just being transparent with one another and, and sharing our sin struggles. That's not a normal prayer request. But obviously you have to have a group where you feel like you can trust them with what you want to share. And so the uh, the, the setting is sometimes a little bit smaller, but have you ever noticed that if somebody does dare to share a sin struggle, there's almost like an you can almost hear the emotional sigh of relief of everybody else glad to hear that somebody else has that problem too. <laughs> and so that we support each other sharing things that, that really matter in our lives. Ephesians 5, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So when you sing, this is, by the way, this is audible singing. This isn't silent singing. Audible singing is where? What direction does it go, according to this verse? This way and this way. Both. You, singing to the Lord is primary, I would say. But the reason you sing out loud is an encouragement to others. And we, we join our hearts and, and God is hearing us. He doesn't care about the key. He cares about the heart. Likewise, Colossians, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. So the, he, 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 is, he is hearing our attitude as we sing. Why do we gather? Teaching, fellowship, sharing a lot of things in the family of God that he designed. When Jesus said he's present when we're gathered, it's also saying that we miss out on something when we stay more isolated, a little more independent Lone Ranger Christians. Because there is some special sense in which he 
dwells, empowers, and makes his presence known and effective because we took the courage, the effort to invest in these relationships. Jesus Christ designed that, and that's why it's our core value to gather as we do this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your plan for our personal salvation. We think so often of our own interests. Thank you that you modeled that we would be also fully concerned about the interests, the needs of others. And so we do embrace your great plan for the church and know that the, the hard work of relationships, the exceeding grace that is necessary is actually part of our spiritual uh, growth. Our sanctification involves relationships. So thank you for that great plan. Thank you for what we can accomplish so much better because we are gathering together and gaining strength from one another. And I pray that your intended purpose, that the gospel would be known and people would be saved, would also be accomplished uh, through the relationships at Open Door Bible Church. In Jesus' name, amen.